data. Home of the future of work, industry and people. With your host, I4O's Oliver Kelly. Everybody, welcome back to the show, The Outback Incubator. My name is Ollie Kelly, and uh, you're joining us today with another guest for an interview. We're uh, privileged today to be able to welcome the founder and chief test pilot from Gravity Industries in the United Kingdom, former British Royal Marine Reserve from Salisbury, England, the real Iron Man, Richard Browning. Thank you very much. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So uh, I'm really excited to talk to you today, Richard. Um, your project is uh, one of those things that when you lay eyes on it for the first time, I'm, I'm sure for kids and for adults alike, as soon as you see it, it sparks excitement and inspiration about what we can achieve. It fits very well into the theme of the Outback Incubator. So, uh, well, first question, I suppose, is obviously we're on opposite sides of the world. You're over in Salisbury, I believe, in the UK. So how's things going over there at the moment with uh, the response to coronavirus and that? Uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's a funny time, isn't it? it? It's amazing how rapidly this situation has rolled out across the world and how most of us are sharing a very similar experience. We were just joking before about uh, you know, homeschooling and kind of lockdown with the, well, yeah, with the school shutdown. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's, I think the UK, uh, hard to judge really. I mean, it's not as bad as some of the European countries, Italy and Spain have had it worse. Uh, I think America's going through quite a challenge. Um, but we've clearly not managed it as efficiently as uh, Germany and some of the Asia, far, you know, uh, Asian countries. I, I think the jury's out, isn't it, in terms of what really happens in the medium term? Uh, you know, how, how do we really kind of hold this back? And um, is this going to mean massive disruption to the former lives we all had for, for the foreseeable future? But um, yeah, I, I think the UK is just about getting on okay. And certainly us, us personally, you know, as a company and as a family, um, all my team are working from home and, um, uh, you know, all furlonged. Um, and uh, I'm actually, in a strange way, I'm actually slightly enjoying, at least for now, the, the break from the relentless travel around the world uh, and the pace that we had going from three years of running this company. Uh, and I've got to things like, for instance, going through our ridiculously huge event archive and test archive of all the footage we've had from over the years. So I'm actually quite enjoying catching up with our YouTube posting of, of sharing a lot of that journey. But um, yeah, so so far it's okay. But yeah, it's a funny time. Uh, but it, but now it's quite nice just to get back to what I probably have the most passion for, which is R&D. I'm surrounded by my lab here. And it's a shame my colleagues have to Zoom call in instead of being here physically. But I'm getting a load of R&D done with them that usually would have take us, taken us another sort of six to nine months in between events. Fantastic. And I saw as well on your social media that you've been 3D printing PPE for the response, which is yes. great. Yes, indeed. In fact, the printer's just off screen there. Uh, yeah, we printed 120 masks now, I think. In fact, actually, uh, not that I prepared them earlier. There we go. There's some just <laughs> sitting around. They're, they're the little headband thingies. Um, and then you put a visor here. I, I'm pleased to report that from the, from the point of view of these in our region, they seem to be okay at the moment. We, we've got enough now ready to go if they have another supply problem but it was in the early days when it was such a shock that um, stocks ran out and we supplied air ambulances and hospitals and gp uh, hot surgeries where you know they'd set up these particular collaborative surgeries and things so yeah that was really nice that we could try and help but in a, in a tiny tiny way but still you know many hands make light work as they say so i mean it's yeah. a it's a great contribution so onto the project uh, richard as i say it's really mm. exciting uh, obviously you're knee deep in it but for the rest of us who kind of look in from a lens from the outside, it's like the future on the screen in front of us. So 
jet suits, my understanding, and correct me anytime that you wish, just over a thousand brake horsepower for the suit to operate and get you off the ground, et cetera. And you can travel over 50 miles an hour. And am I correct in saying 120,000 revs per minute? Yeah, so uh, yes, the, the smaller engines on the arms, that's their uh, typical sort of maximum RPM, yes indeed. Which, you know, for, for your average family car, you're sort of getting a bit nervous past sort of four or 5,000 revs yeah. per minute. So yeah, they're, they're quite, a, quite amazing little pieces of technology, really. I mean, each arm engine, each engine that you have on your arm, and you have two on each arm, uh, they, the, you know, each one only weighs about 1.9 kilos, two kilos, and yet they put out a maximum of 22 kilos of thrust. Uh, which is phenomenal. And all that thrust is generated by blowing air through a hole probably about that big, uh, which is just defies imagination, really. Um, you have to really experience them to feel the true power of what these things do. And yet, strangely, the physics of all this is very much like a fire hose in terms of you're blowing, instead of water out of a hole, which would logically push you the other way, which is what like holding a fire hose is like, um, this is the same, but it's much lighter air, but it's just traveling at more like a 1,000 miles an hour. Uh, and, but it creates the same spongy push. So despite the noise and fury and chaos and perception of, of madness around it, actually, it's completely serene. I mean, we just posted up, um, my wife and I, <laughs> uh, a slightly silly clip. We were doing a collaboration live on Instagram with a famous YouTuber, Colin Furs. Uh, and um, he, he's got a great sense of humor. So he challenged me to see if I could drink a cup of tea and eat a biscuit. It's very British. Um, uh, whilst flying. So on Instagram at Take On Gravity, I'll share those links with you, when, you know, later. But uh, on Instagram, you can see me flying up and taking a drink of tea and biting a biscuit. And I went back for another bit of biscuit, actually. It's so, <laughs> it's so effortless. And yet, it's being supported by all this power and fury. It's, uh, I think that's partly the cocktail that, that enthralls live audiences to such an extent. Um, I suppose, yeah. look, to, to start at the beginning, I've got lots of questions around the suit itself um, and, and all the sort of details around that. But very broad question, where did it begin? Where did this idea come from for you to take it forward? So, yeah, it's a mixture of things, really. So my, my kind of formal background, I was an oil trader with BP for 16 years in the city of London. Uh, and I went straight into that after university. I did enjoy, indeed join the Royal Marines Reserve for about six years and very proudly got my Green Beret and everything with them. Um, I originally had a career in the forces. That's what my plan was. But then having spent so much time at university doing military stuff and, and met my now wife, uh, some 20 years ago or so, um, I kind of thought, oh, I should probably go and dip my hand in earning some money if I can in the, you know, in, in London. And one thing led to another, and I ended up in a very interesting career. But it wasn't really scratching the itch that I inherited from my family. So my late father was a maverick engineer, entrepreneur, and um, you know, huge motivation to me in my life. Um, sadly, lost him when I was 15, and a large part of my journey, really, in hindsight, not that I consciously realised it, but was probably fulfilling a a degree of the unfulfilled entrepreneurial ambition that he left. But my other two grandfathers, one was a, was a wartime pilot and a civil aviation pilot, a civil pilot. Um, and my other grandfather was uh, Sir Basil Blackwell, who used to run Westlands, the helicopter company, now Leonardo. So, uh, and, and again, it's only come through interviews in the last three years that I've sort of pieced together it, <laughs> through answering these kind of questions. And I, it dawned on me that actually that was probably pointing towards <laughs> something outside of oil eventually. Um, but a big part of the, the original challenge was this idea that if you take the human brain and body in the Royal Marines and ultramarathons and some various other sports, if I'm going to run later today, various other sports have taught me that actually the human brain and body is a pretty amazing machine. If you focus it on a challenge, whether it's flying an aircraft, learning to skateboard, ski, 
be a brain surgeon, all of these things that this, this machine can be tailored in most cases to go and achieve. So I thought, look, for no reason other than just the genuine sheer joy of the challenge, what happens if you use that balance system that we've all got, uh, use the strength to weight ratio, which we have. So, you know, I could support myself in planches and other sorts of amateur gymnastic kind of positions. I thought, what if you support the support of the floor or a bar for the momentary support of a jet engine um, or a form of propulsion, but I had a hunch jet engines would be the right thing. Um, it would just be really fun to see if you could actually do something which conventional received wisdom suggests is just not possible. Everybody knows you can't build an Iron Man suit. Everybody knows you can't carry enough fuel. Everybody knows it's too hot and it'd rip your arm off and the centrifugal force, um, or, or sorry, gyroscopic force would mean that you couldn't manipulate the engines because they would fight you perpendicular to what you're trying to do. And yeah, it's just never going to work. I love it when people kind of have that basket of assumptions because underneath that kind of basket of assumptions, only probably one time in 20, because most of the time people are right, things are hard or difficult. Uh, but one time in 20, turns out if you keep persevering and have a little bit of luck and, and you know, call upon the right uh, resources, uh, turns out you can kind of uncover things that people didn't think was possible. So sitting in the background there is about five of them. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was all of just genuine joy fuel journey into what was supposed to be not possible. There was no thought at all to it being a business or anything like that. Which is great because it's for the passion and the love then, right? Just going through that, what you were saying, it reminded me of a picture I saw about six months ago and it was an overlay. It was the Wright brothers in front with their first flight and everyone's excited in black and white and behind it was an A380 from Airbus and mm. it didn't have any words on it, but it, it got me thinking that's about 115 years, right? Look at what has yeah, been achieved in 115 years. Yeah. But the fact is that the original idea came from people saying you can't do that and people saying, well, no, there's mm. always a way. There's always a way that you can at least have a go and find yeah. your way through a process to get there. Do you know there's a lovely anecdote about uh, Kitty Hawk and the Wright brothers. Um, uh, so the, the famous footage, uh, which you can look up online and see uh, where the, the brothers, you know, who were from a background of building bicycles, were achieving the very first flight, the supposed very first flight. Um, not very high, not very fast, you know, it's really crude, but they still flew. That footage isn't the first flight. That was, I think, day two or three, because on day one, when they invited the press to come and view it, no one turned up. Is that right? No one knew what an aeroplane was. No one knew what they were talking about or why it would be useful or interesting. And no one turned up. <laughs> so they had to say, no, honestly, we're flying. Please come and have a look. And so all that famous footage is day two. And I find that hilarious because I felt a little bit of that. Having built this in 2016, didn't share it anywhere, quite unusually for today's day and age. You know, I, I didn't put it on YouTube or anything like that. I had a serious career to kind of protect because I, I really didn't know if it was ever going to work. It looked ludicrous. And again, all this footage is going up on our YouTube. Um, it, was, it was just, you know, it, it was potentially a very silly joke if it didn't ever work. But then it did. And I managed to fly in 2016, about November, a little engine on the back of each leg and two on each arm. It was really difficult, like balancing a sort of puppet on a string. But that moment I landed, I just realized, oh my God, this, this actually works. And if that works, I can so, so improve it. And then the next sort of milestone was that, that various people in the family and stuff would just sort of come out and ask, you know, well, what are you doing at this farmyard? And the, uh, the big moment was actually my mother-in-law who came up one day um, with, my, with my wife. And, you know, she is the hardest person to impress, right? Especially with noise and jet engines and flying, you know, all this sort of stuff. And she literally had tears in her eyes when I landed, and I think for a good reason. Um, but no, she gave me a hug and just said, I get it. I just, that's just miraculous. That doesn't look real. That's, I just get it. And, and it was really quite a profound moment. So I thought, why well, blimey, you know, 
this deserves to be packaged a little bit and, and shared in a slightly more professional way than just whacking out on YouTube and see what happens. Um, so we, we partnered with Wired and Red Bull, which are two brilliant brands to try and achieve that objective. And in April 2017, we launched it. I still had a day job. I did warn my employer that there might be something going on in the media. But again, I didn't really know if it would really go anywhere. And it just went crazy. Within a week, we had a billion impressions. Um, I got a phone call from Chris Anderson to go and do TED 2017 in Vancouver. And there's a whole accidental VC round story on the way to that event. And then, you know, we've just grown it into really quite a substantial business with a large number of people. And there's a million things I can tell you about that we're going to do when, certainly when this lockdown is uh, lifted eventually. Well, if you won favor with your mother-in-law, you're already the people's champion, Richard. Everything else is just <laughs> details. So that's excellent. And, and going back to BP, actually, so oil and, I've worked in oil and gas for a number of years as well, actually. And um, it's, it's an interesting industry in that it can be very archaic, the way things are done, but it also always looks to innovation. So it's like this double-edged sword. And um, where I'm going with this is, to your point earlier, which is when people say this can't be done or that can't be done, and innovation is obviously a frame of mind or a way of life where you think, well, there's always a better way. So I know you did win an award uh, for what you did at BP. And, and I think that's probably testament to, it's not like you've just had an idea outside of your career and gone for it, but it, it's probably in your DNA. And when I say DNA, from the story you've told me, you know, with your father and everything as well, um, it could well be there. So, so what was it that you actually did at BP? What was that project? Because I know you won an award for it, didn't you? Uh, yeah, so I, I, I had a, quite a few lucky breaks, uh, but I was also pretty good at making sure that the failures were not catastrophic to the company or me personally. And that's a really important point of innovation. You've got to make those failures recoverable. That's our key, key ethos here. Uh, but yes, back at BP, I mean, my really big breakthrough for which I became quite famous in the industry for, for a period, uh, and arguably was more impactful than building jet suits, was the discovery of a system called AIS, it's Automatic Identification System, and it's used as an anti-collision beacon system in shipping. Uh, so every big ship has a transmitter and pings out an unencrypted signal that says, hey, I'm here, I'm going over there, and this is my name, you know, basically, please don't hit me in fog and things. And every ship carried it, and they also carried a receiver listening in to all the other ships around it. So it's a very great safety system. Um, what no one had really realized is that there was a network of kind of ship-spotting enthusiasts around the world that had stuck little listening antennas perfectly legally in, like, flapped windows overlooking bays and ports and shipping channels and things like that. These things could pick up signals on a good day at about 50-mile radius, and they'd network them all together. Because if I plug mine in, well, I can see everybody else's. And they, they just delighted in watching all these ships move around the world. No one had really realized from a commercial point of view, if you marry that information up with some knowledge about what the cargo history of those ships are, you can see in real time for uh, uh, cargo flows. So you can, you can see where, you know, a gasoline carrier or a, or a crude carrier or a grain carrier, you can see where they're loading, you can see where they're going. But even better, they're typing in where they're going and when they think they're going to get there. So I created like a virtual commodity trading crystal ball and the joy was no one got it this is back to the Wright Brothers thing right in a way uh, clearly a much smaller level but it was the same principle no one got what I was talking about and I had a hunch but I still wasn't that confident I sort of thought there was something intuitively valuable it sounds ridiculous to even question it now but I squeezed 20,000 US dollars out of my then boss who just said look if it keeps you quiet stop whinging about it don't do it in work time just go knock yourself out. So I found a little company outside of BP that could do a sort of Google Maps type platform because back in those days, I don't, remember, don't think Google Maps was even around. I did a deal with this network, this sort of collaborative network to get their data on a trial basis, squirted it onto this map, 
posted it on our HR intranet page because the, for all the trading servers and stuff, I was told to run away. If I had a million dollars of budget, I could possibly get some five nines reliability uh, space and all this sort of rubbish. And I, I clearly didn't. Uh, I'd burnt my 20 grand on getting this platform built. So I got it on this HR server, somewhere in South Africa, I think, because I'm a very, very enthusiastic uh, IT manager down there supported me. And I literally printed out the URL longhand and stuck it on the desk of all the traders. Went home that night, came in the next morning, and there was just like noise everywhere. There's people crowded around screens, everybody holding up these little bits of paper. It was just crazy. And yeah, I mean, it's so long ago now. I mean, it's at least 10 years ago. I can probably just say it, but it made BP well over half a billion dollars. I think we got nearest 700 million by the end of the first year. Now, every, every, the whole industry eventually caught up. And actually, on a positive note, this was actually representing an efficiency for the market. So if, if everybody in the market can get a better idea of what everybody else is doing, actually, everybody can plan a lot more efficiently. You're not going to have ships passing each other with similar cargoes or not doing multi-port drops and all this sort of stuff. So actually, it was genuine release of inefficiency value, if that makes sense, from the market. This wasn't anybody gaming anybody else or anything. Yeah. Uh, and it was just brilliant. I, and I, it just, it did, it did reinforce in me that addiction to a degree of when you spot something, you get a twinkle in your eye and think, wouldn't that be cool if that worked? And then surviving relentless times when it doesn't, but just for those one or two occasions where you do get to the summit and the view is amazing. And, and obviously it's in your blood, you know I mean? And you've proven that and, and you, you're surely not stopping where you are at the moment as well. And, and so around those iterations, just on that last point you made there, um, when you've got a personal suit that takes you off the ground, your risk profile, uh, pardon the pun, it elevates pretty quickly, right? So as you've worked through iterations of your suit, and I know you've done a TED talk on this as well and talked about some of this stuff, but, but for the listeners and viewers, mm-hmm. generally what, what has been the iteration process, what hasn't worked, um, and failure, it's got to be recoverable, like you said, but failure, I imagine, is le- leading to you falling on the ground quite a few times. It's like trying to, to walk, isn't it? You have to fall over to learn to walk. But um, mm-hmm. what's been the general pattern of iteration to get to where you are from the very beginning? Yeah, so the sort of evolutionary pathway has been working out that you need X number of jet engines on paper to lift you and the equipment then working out where to put them. And obviously the arms are a good place because you can manipulate and move your arms, but you don't want to be lifting all your body weight with your arms. A lot of people make that mistake in looking at what we do and think, oh, that must be really hard. Well, there, there is a third of the power, at least on your back, which is lifting some of the equipment and lifting some of you. So the, 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 the steady, relentless march was towards creating a sort of web of thrust vectors, like a sort of TP, tent pole, camera tripod kind of arrangement of thrust vectors which are inherently stable, but also manipulable. So if you sort of throw one arm out to the side of it, guess what? You go the other way. And your brain, just like riding a bicycle, just bizarrely learns very quickly. We've trained over 50 people, clients now uh, to fly, and some of them learn it within literally a morning, uh, four or five goes. But they all have the luxury of the safety tether, which means they can't even fall over on their knees. Uh, I didn't. So yeah, to answer your question, I had this attitude that if I properly, before I do everything, I properly have, a, uh, I, I suppose, a a moment to analyze the risk of what I'm doing. And if the risk manifests, what impact is that going to be on me or people around me? And is it recoverable? So if it's me falling over from a few feet onto concrete with a knee, with knee pads on, that'll probably bend a bit of metal work. You know, all of that is a lot less bad than cycle commuting across London in rush hour for two, uh, well, no, actually it wasn't two years, it was more like five years which for when I used to be in London. 
Um, so I, I would sort of make that assessment. Now, you know, the, the equipment has the potential to keep going. It doesn't push off the ground. In fact, it gets cleaner and easier to fly out of recirculation when you go higher. Um, but I suppose it's testament, you know, 103 events, team of seven other pilots um, doing this for three and a half, four years, and we've never had any serious injuries at all. I mean, I, I know that does not like I'm hiding any bad injuries. We, didn't, we haven't really had any injuries. I mean, I've fallen over and I, I put up just recently, I had gathered the whole team over Zoom to review some of our fails. I'm overdue doing another little fails uh, YouTube at some point. If you look at Gravity Industries, you can see a lot of the fails and us kind of having some fun at each other's expense about the fails. Um, so yeah, we are very, very passionate about managing the downside risk, managing what failure means. And in a weird way, I, I kind of realized it's quite like running a trading book. You don't make all the right decisions all the time, far from it. You've just got to make sure that the failures don't cost you everything, that you can get back up again and survive enough to get to the successes. And, and look, that record of, of no incidents says a lot for you, obviously. I mean, you, you've built that in. And I know one of the things that um, I saw on one of the um, documents that I was provided, I know this thing can go to 12,000 feet, but you just don't operate it up there, right? Because you want to make sure no, it's manageable. The, I mean, let, let's just, I, I'll just uh, embellish the hype thing uh, just a, a second as well, because it's the natural human instinct. We've noticed this, but people go, oh, how high can it go and how high have you been? Well, you know, I must have been 150 feet or so over water. And I, uh, during those times, you know, it's wing testing and stuff. And I've caught more lift than I wanted. And then in a slow, steady way, I've sort of looked and thought, oh, that's a long way down. That's going to really hurt if I get a problem right now. So I just, in a calm, steady way, just, just start to bring the height back down again. You know, we've realized there is no bonus to going up high. From an entertainment and race series point of view, no one wants to see you as a little black dot. They want to see you, you know, almost as clear as you're seeing me, hopefully. Um, and that just blows people's minds. So you, you want to be 20 feet over water, and then that's really very safe, and all the equipment floats and everything. Um, over hard standing, you ideally don't even want to be that high. Um, there are, and even the military work we've done, we, they don't want us to go high, high either because you're just more vulnerable. So actually, yes, we played with all sorts of parachutes and safety systems, but it's really quite a pleasure to try and just dodge the whole nightmare uh, of trying to uh, you know, get, get all of that or trying to rely on all of that kind of equipment. I know that you've said, uh, I saw a video where you said you welcome competition. I know that we're going to talk about the, the racing stuff in just a moment, but you very clearly said, I think it was in an interview with Wired or someone like that, and you said uh, competition's healthy and we welcome that. Um, mm. That says a lot about you. And actually made me think of Elon Musk, because I know that Elon Musk has a very, and, and a lot of the great inventors of the world have that mentality, which is it's bigger than my idea it's actually a movement or it's driving us forward or whatever it is. So what is your philosophy on that in, in particular around these jet suits and personal aviation, let's call it, I guess. There's a, there's a small and unusual little collection of, uh, of, I suppose, people and companies in this area. I mean, there, there's a large group of companies now trying to push into the world. I'm sure you and your listeners will know about this, you know, into the world of, of kind of air taxis, electric taxis, um, medium to short distance parcel delivery, all that kind of stuff. Um, that kind of blurs a little bit into our world, but they tend to be vehicles with electric motors and rotating props that you rely on their autonomy to, well, maybe lift you, but mostly just lift equipment and whatever. Our ethos was very much trying to blend human and machine, trying to um, be the bicycle that's not a 
great sexy analogy um or be the um you know lotus cars i mean i hopefully i'm I i'm imagining lotus you know, you know lotus sports cars yeah, in australia cars. yeah right okay cool i mean there's a very british thing so i'm sure they've percolated over they used to be when in my childhood they were famous for not being the most powerful cars but being light and beautifully engineered where not for reliability usually but where the suspension setup and the handling was so good that they could outgun big American muscle cars around tracks by being smart with what power they had. Mm. And I, I always thought it was really neat. I love the ethos of that engineering. So whilst we have tons of power, frankly, way more than most Lotuses, but all of them, um, the, the whole ethos was stray away from the temptation of building in ECUs and gyros and computers because very quickly it becomes a box that you plonk your ass on and press go. And well, what's exciting about that? Actually, that's not hard anymore. And actually, it's quite scary because if that box goes wrong, it could take you up in the air and then fail. I love the idea that, again, a bit like a bicycle, this thing, what we fly, these things here, they go exactly where you think. So within sometimes less than an hour, you, are, you have got to a point where, and again, you can see this on the social media, you are looking up and grinning like an idiot and just thinking where you want to go and you fly there. There is a joyous sort of freedom in it and there's no systems involved there's no uh, delay or there's no we have loads of um uh, former fighter pilots with us uh f-35 harrier guys and all sorts of and they they love the fact this is seat of the pants raw aviation of the likes that inspired most of them to go down the pathway they've gone and you know we've been very very lucky in having their praise and them saying that actually this is far more real than alive certainly than modern jet fighters that are so computer assisted you're a little bit of a passenger um, so, uh, in terms of other you know, competition, so there, there is this sort of autonomy collection, but actually the core group, it, it's um, the Jetpack Aviation guys, David Mayman, with the traditional kind of jetpack, which instead of having rockets, which is truly scary, he used to do that amongst a um, few other people, swap those out for gas turbines, which is a lot more sensible, maybe on a spectrum of not very sensible, which we maybe, according to some people's judgment, might all occupy. Um, He's a great guy. He's been doing it for quite some time. I, I think it's quite a big thing. It's quite a heavy, large item, and it does look very similar to the 1980s uh, jetpack that um, uh, people saw in the Olympics and James Bond films and things. But, you know, David's a great guy. He's pushed it a long way. Um, there is the French guy, Frankie Zapata, is a one-man crazy guy, um, a former jet ski racing guy, not afraid to take crazy risks. Uh, he stands on the hoverboard using similar engines to ours. Um, he goes pretty high and pretty fast. He kind of has to because if he goes too low, he gets big recirculation and he has to land on this, land and take off on this raised platform, um, which we, we like doing if we can, but we don't have to. Um, I, I do worry about Frankie's safety sometimes, but in the meantime, he's doing an amazing job. Uh, and then there's Yves Rossi, the guy that most people will have seen at some point pop up on their social media in the last decade with the powered sort of free fall wing, um, jumps out of a helicopter typically, fires up the engines and then flies along, often alongside things like A380, so I think he's done it once anyway. Um, he's a great guy, and I know him quite well, he's a, he's a wonderful pioneer. So yeah, there's really not very many of us in this world. And um, so with the, the racing that you want to move towards, I know you've done one or two already, but so would those guys and their tech be involved or are you looking at just gravity uh, industry suits that would be involved in that racing? What does that it, look like? Yeah, so the first race was supposed to be in Bermuda. We've got a shipping container sitting in Bermuda right now full of all our gear, not the race suits, luckily, but, but everything else. Um, that was scheduled for March, and unfortunately, the lockdown has kind of paused that, but it will happen at some point, even if it's behind closed doors. 
um, we've got all the race pilots, all the gear, everything all kind of set up. And I think it will be a wonderful showcase of sort of human and machine capability, a bit like a, a human uh, Red Bull air race meets Marvel Iron Man meets sort of nighttime Formula One kind of mashup. I, I, I'm very passionate that this could be an awesome sport, but I'm going to let the content from when we finally run the race actually speak for itself. Um, it, I, I, it's hard, though, to build a brand new sport. Um, I think it would be made extra hard by mi mixing together lots of different technologies that all have different strengths and weaknesses. It'd be like racing rally cars against Formula One cars. It depends what the surface is. Um, otherwise, you're not going to end up with a, a fair fight. So Eves, well, he needs a helicopter to jump out of, but then he goes ridiculously fast. But then when he finishes, he's got to pull a parachute. Well, that's a bit weird because none of the rest of us do that. Um, Frankie's going to need his raised platform to start and finish. Otherwise, he can't operate anywhere else. So we've got to have, give him just that. Um, David, I mean, I'm not sure necessarily how fast he can go in with the great big jetpack system. Um, but it's probably the most similar to us, I would have thought. Uh, but then he doesn't have a leg wing system, uh, you know, any aerodynamic aids. So when I flatten out and do 85 miles an hour like I did for the speed record, would that be considered cheating? Or does David want to try and fit some kind of wing to his? You see the problem you get to. You need a certain amount of consistency in the competition. Otherwise, you can't really understand which of the humans is actually doing a really good job. I imagine that what you're looking for then is like a circuit eventually where uh, exotic locations around the world, they, that would be the best place for it, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, the joy of it is that, that any water location, any lake, river or seafront, and you think about it, nearly every city has one of those, um, then we really don't need much space. The, the area we occupy in the risk profile is nothing in comparison to a you know, Red Bull Air Race. And we know quite a few of those guys. It's a very self-contained thing. All the pilots travel with their own jet suits. That thing there as one entire self-contained jet suit fits in a check-in or two check-in suitcases. And in normal circumstances, you can fly anywhere in the world with it and even run it off road diesel. So we, we're, very, we're very low maintenance. Maybe this is going to be a real benefit when we emerge from this virus challenge, but we're very easy to set up anywhere in the world and create really quite well hopefully this is the feedback from three years very inspirational and exciting visceral live action and content so um i think a bit like formula e have done a brilliant job of bringing the action to people's front door around the world i think we can do the same thing but even cheaper and easier now you as well as said i've read somewhere that you would consider moving to iterations with electric as well which is obviously you know future thinking so is, is that just something sitting in the background or is that something that you're really looking to put resources into it yeah we put some of it on uh, social media so we built an electric version using electric ducted fans um uh it's tough you you and your listeners are probably familiar with the the, the ratios of between 40 and 60 when you when it comes to looking at the energy density deficit of batteries you know lithium batteries versus gasoline diesel or jet fuel you know, one kilo of those fuels has to be matched with 40 to 60 kilos of lithium battery weight to contain the same energy. Mm. It's a real challenge, but Elon Musk and friends are all working on trying to crack this. So once they do, we are ready and waiting because the electric ductive fan system does work. It's quieter, um, not as much as you'd imagine, but it is quieter. Um, and obviously instant start, there's no real heat involved. Not that that's a problem really, surprisingly, but uh, yeah, we, we'd love to. I mean, the, the biggest leap we made was actually lightening the pilot to solve the battery problem. So I recruited one of my sons at the time was nine uh, and we clipped him into the <laughs> tether. And there's a great little clip. We should probably put that online actually. We haven't shared that yet. Uh, and he bounced around like he was on the moon, uh, which is pretty cool. But yeah, it's tough. I'd love to, I'd love to have an electric series. That'd be cool. 
And you've answered this to an extent already, but uh, the next question I had was really around future potential applications of this. And I don't expect you to give everything away yep. anyway in an interview such as this, but uh, entertainment seems to be your priority. There's obviously so many other applications. I mean, the first thing that went into my head, having worked on cross-country pipelines for a number of years, was you don't have to have someone sitting in a Land Cruiser anymore. You can just pop someone along a pipeline right of way and they can drop down as long as it's intrinsically safe or they're outside the boundary. But there's, there's 101,000 things you could do. Yeah, no, no I mean, let, let, me, let me unpack that slightly. So, so yes, it dawned on us that when you think about Formula One and IndyCar, NASCAR, and you know, you've got a bunch of your own motorsport franchises out there, haven't you? Um, what is the point of those vehicles? Are those are the Holdens and the GMs. Am I thinking, am I right? Yes, you're great yeah, yeah. kind of muscle cars. Yeah, that's right. right. The V8. So what's yeah. the point? Yeah, exactly. What's the point of those vehicles, right? I mean, they sound awesome. They look brilliant. They're entertaining. They're inspiring, and they leave a, leave a trail of technology. But are they practical? No, not at all. So it sort of dawned on us that actually we've accidentally invented that basket. You know, the consistent reaction from polling a hundred different audiences around the world has been, "Oh my God, I've never seen anything like it, and I want to see more." So it's like, well, okay, why don't we just run with the entertainment and inspiration thing? And as that human competition especially scale through a race series, you know, pushes the technology faster and further, then we might well leave a trail of actually usable technology. Now, in the meantime, it's very true to say search and rescue and special forces. We've got a very active program in both of those in the US and UK. The military stuff is huge fun, I have to say. Um, and my background helps there a lot. But really, in terms of taking the kids to school, dropping down the shops, you know, maintaining social distance while you go uh, to the shops, <laughs> um, probably good for that. Um, then no, it, th th it's not practical. It would be like having a Formula One car in your garage to go to the shops. In, if you really had to, you could do, but it's just silly and potentially dangerous. So um, I paused that thought for a moment and then rem re I'm reminded of a story, and I always quote this, that um, one of the early pioneers of the automobile uh, was the, the Benz, Mercedes-Benz kind of uh, original uh, story. And I think, forget, forget, forget the guy's name though, but Mr. Benz, his wife took the very crude prototype that he had built, sort of without him. I think the story is that even without his real permission, but anyway, um, she just took it out and thought, right, I want to prove this thing is useful because he's probably wasting a lot of time with this and whatever. It sounds like a familiar story. And she drove this thing like 20 miles to the next town. And it took like a day because it broke down the whole time and she had to fix it. And it was noisy and smelly and a joke. And people passed her all the time with horses going, what is, why are you wasting your time with this? The horse is way better. And look where cars have got to. So if through the medium of race series, we end up evolving this to a point where maybe an electric version with a bunch of clever airbag type safety aids, which also make sure you don't go more than 20 feet or something, then maybe. I'm not going to lose any sleep over it, but it, it's, it's, it's really awesome fun in the meantime to see where this goes. Well, we are exponential at the moment, even though we've got a pause with coronavirus. So who knows? But in the meantime, everyone's just going to enjoy it, I guess. So. Now, um, I don't want to keep you too much longer because it's the morning over there. I'm fortunate it's the evening here, but uh, you've got a book coming out. Can you tell us what's it called and what's it about? Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, uh, yes. This is a slightly tricky subject now. Yes, Penguin Random House, the big global publisher, um, uh, and I, they approached me, um, have put together a, an account of the whole early origin of this and actually a lot of my, my early inspiration that you were mentioning there, my father, my, my father and childhood kind of story. Um, it's called Taking on Gravity, um, and uh, it was due to be out at Father's Day this year. But guess what? Um, the whole global publishing industry has decided they can't now gather for book fairs or meetings or anything. So it's pushed back to 2021. I think it's still on pre-order, and um, 
I've got the challenge at some point of uh, reading the audio book. Uh, and it's tricky because I love audiobooks and I really I, I haven't got the patience and I, my, I blame my dyslexia for being, mild dyslexia for being a rubbish reader anyway. Um, so I've got to read my book to myself and everybody hopefully that wants to listen to it. Um, so that, that will fill the time in the meantime. But uh, yeah, I think it's unfortunately going to be about a year before it's out. But yeah, taking on gravity. In the meantime, I would love to point people at, like I say, our social media, particularly our YouTube. I've done a load of behind the scenes documentary stuff and there's more coming. So uh, if people are in lockdown and, yeah, bored, stuck with the kids, whatever, then hopefully that in some small way can help. Excellent. And we'll put all your handles on uh, the show notes as well for this so they can access directly from there. So, um, And we'll look forward to the book coming out. And you know you've made it when you're reading your own book to yourself. So congratulations. When I've heard some authors read, um, especially military people, I've you know, listened to some military um, uh, biographies when you know I'm running and things and you can tell when they've had a break between chapters of probably a week or two because by the end of it they're like oh god I'm sort of falling asleep <laughs> and then they come back and next chapter and I'm all upbeat and excited so I've got to try and avoid the ebb and flow of enthusiasm but anyway uh, anyway people can probably laugh at me getting this wrong when I get around to it. Yeah we'll look forward to it. Well listen that's the end of everything I've got today I don't want to keep you any longer but Richard, thank no you worries. so much for your time today. It's a, an honor to meet you and uh, you're doing great things. There's nothing short of cool that you're doing. It's one of the coolest projects I've seen out there for sure. Um, people just enjoy watching it. Keep going as you are and look forward to seeing Gravity uh, moving forward over the coming years. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Outback Incubator. We'll be back next week with our next interview. In the meantime, you can access us on Apple iTunes, on the YouTube channel, and of course, on uh, Google Podcasts as well. Until next time, thanks very much for listening. And remember, there is always a better way. Gentle,